Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Happy spring. (laughs) (laughs) So this practice that we're exploring together um, has endless depth. And I hope now now that as we've had some time to practice separately, doing solo practice and everyday practice, and practicing together now for a few months, that um, some of the layers of what at first seems to be such a simple practice start to reveal themselves and to notice how much there is to notice. Because sometimes these terms like mindfulness, sati in Pali, um, get translated not just in pop culture, but in our own minds too simplistically. Like, be here now. Be here now is great philosophy to live by. But you probably see that there's a lot more happening than just being here now. There's a lot to investigate. And one of the places that we've been focusing is on the second characteristic that the Buddha describes as impermanence. And in a way, one of the things we're getting to know in this practice, and today as we explore more of the second foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of feeling, uh, getting to know deeply the transitory nature of our feelings and noticing how when we're obs- when, when the transitory nature of reality is obscured by our fantasies and our wants and our different patterns of craving, um, we're not on very solid ground because it's a it's a it's a ground or an existential or psychological ground that we've created rather than the basic ground of reality. which I don't think cares much for what we think. It's interesting that some of the places on the planet right now where there's uh, emerging biodiversity, um, 
are places where there's no human contact. Some of you might know that the, the two places that biologists are studying the most right now in terms of looking at how biodiversity operates. Uh, One is Chernobyl. The earth around Chernobyl has some of the most interesting plant and insect life anywhere because you see evolution trying to find a way to establish itself. And the no person's land between... um, North and South Korea. There's a whole strip there where humans are not allowed to go. And so we have tremendous biodiversity. And so it's interesting too in our in the ecology of our own mind to notice the natural world. Thought patterns, feelings, emotions, physical sensations. That's the natural world in its diversity manifesting in human form. And paying attention in that way gives us some real stability in our lives because we're in contact with how things actually are, not how we need them to be. So whenever a word becomes popular, like mindfulness, I always try and find another way <laughs> to um, to investigate what that means. So I, I, I did some research and I found a few uh, different ways that people have translated the word sati, the Pali word sati, or the Sanskrit word smukti. Um, I picked some of my favorites. Um, the first one is not floating. not floating. So if the mind is always caught up in the uh, fluctuating patterns of consciousness or in our constant elaborative tendency, um, we're floating. It's a kind of virtual reality. Um, Another translation that I really like is um, face-to-face with the object. Face-to-face with the object. I'd say at first for the ego that's used to being caught in uh, elaboration and fantasy, becoming face-to-face with the object is dangerous. It seems at first like a danger. Like in a way, every other person in this room is dangerous. Because they might mess up your theory about who everyone is and how this group operates. There's this phenomenon on meditation retreats that I always find quite interesting which is um, falling in love. Mm -hmm. That um, you'll go on a 10 day silent retreat and um, you'll fall in love with somebody 
who you're not allowed to look at, who you won't talk to. And you'll see him in the front row. And um, that's it. She is the one. <laughs> and um, and you'll, this will go on for nine days. Look at the way she sits or what he wears. Look at how still he is. Or look at how she can't sit still. She's like me. We belong together. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, the best part is on day number 10 when you actually get to talk. (laughs) Think, oh my God, what a waste of energy. (laughs) I have nothing in common. They have the strangest voice. This is not the right voice for this person. (laughs) Her eyes are not blue. Or the phenomenon sometime of retreat of people uh, getting caught in fear and thinking, oh, I can't do this for the next eight days. I have to go home. And in some retreat centers, they actually take your car keys. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, usually when you start to speak to people who want to leave a retreat, there's usually uh, a real strong identification with their fantasy about what is going to happen. But when you actually make contact with what's happening for them moment to moment, usually everything is okay. (laughs) It's the idea that I can't do this for seven days. But actually, from moment to moment, if we're just paying attention to what's happening, things are okay. My favorite instruction in meditation that I've received is pay attention to short moments for long periods of time. (laughs) Another translation of sati is not losing. Not losing. Not losing in the sense of not gaining, not losing. But that would be interesting also. But not losing contact with the primary object of meditation. And of course what's interesting about the four foundations of mindfulness is that there's a sequence of what that primary object of meditation is. And over time it includes more and more and more and more until it includes everything. Another translation that I think relates to not losing is guarding. And I like this sense. Guarding. Not in a defensive way but um, guarding the sense organs from too much distraction. Creating an environment where we're protected enough that we can start to pay attention to small things for short periods of time 
in duration. One breath after another after another. Another one is a rope connecting. A rope connecting. A rope connecting. So you all know, for example, that um, the body is always grounded. The breath is always present. So the mind can just be flying around in all kinds of directions. And then as soon as you make contact with the breath, a rope appears that's immediately connecting you with present experience. A rope connecting. Another one is strong noting. Strong noting. Where the intention to know what is happening now is the dominant intention in the mind. And the last one, I I could list 50. These were my favorite. But the last one, which is my favorite one, comes from Buddha Gosa, who is a a Theravadan um, Buddhist philosopher and commentator. And um, his translation of sati is a post set in the object. A post set in the object. What does that mean? What does that mean for you? A post set in the object. How is sati like a post set in the object? This is a very different description of mindfulness than a rope where I'm trying to reel myself in in some way. A post set in the object. What does this mean for you? For me, it's the object. The object would be the breath. Mm-hmm. And the post would be the breath. Mm-hmm. I think it's uh, more intentional than the rope. The rope is coming. The post is coming. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, when you think about a post in Ontario, for example, it has to be four feet deep. That's nice because, in a way, a, a post set in the object, um, we could also imagine as um, pointing towards the fact that the po- there is always a post in every object. That even though the object is transitory, um, awareness is not. 
It's always there in every object. You could say behind every object, in every object, or in every moment of experience, awareness is always present. Underneath all of those fluctuations, underneath all of those patterns, uh, the, the post of awareness is always there, always ticking away, in the same way that the body is always grounded. And in a way, this, this brings up this sense that I hinted at in um, the meditation instruction this morning, which is no, noting, the strong noting of wanting. And of course, for the Buddha, uh, the cause of suffering is craving. The cause of suffering is craving. And the word for craving in uh, Pali is tanha. Tanha. Which is always translated as craving. um, Or sometimes poorly translated as desire. And I like to translate tanha as um, wanting. Wanting. Wanting things to be different than they are. Wanting. Notice as we sit together, um, finally we're here in this room, sitting with a group of people, and there can be very strong energy of wanting. Wanting concentration. Wanting stillness. Wanting your neighbor's posture. Not wanting your neighbor's posture. Wanting the temperature to be different. Wanting another coffee. All different degrees of wanting. Wanting. And in a way, there's a relationship between being still and letting go of wanting. We're setting up the conditions in the form for letting go, for renunciation. And wanting obscures awareness. It crea- expectation always creates agitation. Always, always, always. And so in a way, this practice is a lot like the outgoing tide. Where you know that the incoming tide is going to occur and bring all kinds of seaweed and stresses. But in that practice of exhaling, in that awareness of the outgoing tide, we know what it feels like to momentarily let go of wanting to let go of that mind state of wanting, tanha. How did wanting show up for you this morning? How did wanting show up? I had this scar <coughs> from the third issue. And so 
often what happens is my breath gets jagged and stuck there or it gets full of saliva and I have to swallow properly. So there's lots of wanting to stop. And so the more that I want that to stop, the more intense the physical sensation gets. Yeah, and and you know that's it's I think common for any kind of physical discomfort that arises, um, and it's interesting to notice how one of the characteristics of craving is that it's persistent. You know, you 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 notice how it arises and maybe passes away with good mindfulness, and then six seconds later it's back again. <laughs> and um, that's why the, the focus is really breath by breath moment by moment mm-hmm. and if you want to define a moment as a breath cycle you know, an inhale is a moment an exhale is a moment just one moment at a time one breath at a time so that what at first seems solid then over time, you can begin to see how it's a persistent process rather than a solid thing. And then again, we're back to impermanence. The transitory nature of these phenomenon. Somebody else, how did you notice wanting? How did you notice wanting? Yes. I'm wanting my mind to calm down. I'm wanting to stop flying around. Yeah. And I was flying around. So, and really to notice the difference between an aspiration, an intention, and an expectation. Mm-hmm. To try and tease out the different states of mind that are present when we're expecting stillness. I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm supposed to be still, I want to be still. Or just that simple intention of, I'm going to pay attention now to the breath. Where there isn't this grand concept that meditation equals samadhi. <laughs> just paying attention to what's here, breath by breath. And that is psychological stillness because there's an absence of wanting, an absence of craving. And that's a great intention and aspiration. But the intention is to pay attention. The expectation is that paying attention is going to lead to this. There's a big difference there. You know this working with your your clients, that on days where maybe there's a lot of expectation for you with some people of, you know, what happiness could be in their lives, (laughs) it's exhausting for you, and actually it's exhausting for them, as opposed to the aspiration, the intention of just serving just being there. And actually this we're going to talk about later, but this is really one of the best ways of avoiding burnout 
which I like to call compassion fatigue. (coughs) To see how, for most of us, what we burn out on is not um, the work, and it's not the people. It's it's, uh, expectation. Expectation of how we're supposed to be, expectation of what they could be or how they should be, an expectation of what this work is supposed to to do. (laughs) So, you could say that, that the end of craving, the end of craving is the unconditioned, is awareness, which is not a state. And I hope Norman, I hope you heard this, Norman covered this over and over again last week, or last session, that the, that, that the unconditioned or the undying or awareness or whatever word you give to that experience um, is not a far-off state. Nirvana, or in Pali, Nibbana, is not a place you get to. Nirvana means to blow out or to extinguish. And what's being extinguished? Wanting, craving. Does that mean being excited about something or having an intention to do something is absent? No. But the the contraction is absent. The contraction is absent. Can you say more about the contraction? Well, how d- how does it appear for you? What about someone in the in the group? How how, how does wanting as a form of contraction, and I would say they're synonymous, mm-hmm. uh, manifest for you in, in your experience? Attachment to a result when you get into experience, you can't be result. Wanting a result. Wanting yeah? Uh-huh. It's just like a fixation. A fixation? It's almost an obsessive quality. It's that wanting that's such an attachment. And I have to have that. And so it blocks out the awareness of the fixation, you could say, appears in the result-oriented mind. Or, I, for myself, I notice it appears in mind states that are um, uh, dominated by planning. Yeah, on Valentine's Day, uh, my son and I, we woke up really early to go get uh, Michelle some croissants and some nice things for breakfast, you know. And uh, so we did. We got all kinds of really great things to eat. We came home and set them all up on the table. 
And, uh, and we were all sitting and eating, and I noticed that our son, he's four and a half, was so frustrated because there were so many good things to eat, and he couldn't figure out like <laughs> how to enjoy <laughs> one thing at a time. So he'd have like all of this stuff mixed together, you know, like jam on a croissant in his cereal, dipped, and, <laughs> and then everything was soggy, you know. And how do you manage the enjoyment? <laughs> you know, how do you manage it? So many choices, in a way, yeah. And it's not even that there are choices, but that built into the choice is the expectation that making the choice is going to offer pleasure, you know? And because of our addiction to pleasure, the choice becomes synonymous with instant gratification. You know? there, there's an advertisement that I saw recently something to do with Vogue magazine, and it said, um, instant gratification just got faster. (laughs) 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 And you could, in a way, have, like, if I was the marketing person, I would have a before and after picture. <laughs> so you have like a four and a half year old with this amazing food, you know, all around him. And then the next picture, you have like this soggy mess of a bowl with all those things inside of <laughs> and this look of, you know, unsatisfaction. And it's interesting to see just in your own mind states how quickly the desire for pleasure becomes unsatisfaction. I was just thinking, I mean, I understand what you say and I've experienced it and the contraction is actually really good because every time I I get obsessive, I feel a a physical contraction Mm -hmm. in my body. Mm -hmm. But what I want to understand is the psychological process of how, Mm -hmm. through meditation Mm -hmm. and whatever means, you get to end it. Because yeah. I still can't see, well, I can understand the concept, I can't see the path uh-huh. to the ending of it. Uh-huh. Good. <laughs> um, I mean, in a way, to go back to some of these other translations of sati, and one of them is a strong noting. And I, I really like that, you know, this this sense that you're sitting and noticing there is craving. In this moment, so watching what's happening and noticing, a strong noting, there is craving, there is wanting. And then getting to know the state of wanting. Getting to know what wanting feels like. What does wanting feel like? It's not what does the croissant taste like or what's it going to taste like. So we're not noticing the content of the wanting. We're noticing the feeling of wanting not the object of the want. 
It's almost like a momentum of starting. <coughs> yeah. When, you, when you're wanting something, it's just, I don't know, it's like a change of energy. Mm-hmm. It's sort of going, and then all of a sudden your mind starts yeah. flying around a little bit, is what yeah. I find. And then it tightens up, and you know, your yeah. jaw starts to get tight, and yeah. you get a little bit freaked out and stuff yeah. like that. But there's an energy or something underneath that's sort mm-hmm. of starting first, I think. Yeah. That's what it feels like. Yeah. That's a nice description. Uh, one of the things I think about is I remember when I was working with somebody who um, um, one of the things that he was struggling with was stealing. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a supervisor and she suggested that to really get to know the object of what he wanted to steal. Mm-hmm. That something about the object would tell us something about his fantasy, about what he would um, uh, find for himself. Mm-hmm. And I kept following that and following that, and it, and it was really going around in circles. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I found that actually the object really it didn't matter, you know. And then her suggestion was the fact that the object doesn't matter really tells something tells us something about uh, his, 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 his need. You know? mm-hmm. And I actually didn't find this very helpful. Mm-hmm. And what I ended up focusing on with him was um, just getting to know wanting, mm-hmm. getting to know craving. Mm-hmm. And it, it's amazing how much that frees up um, the mind to actually notice what's happening in a moment of compulsion. Because the tendency in the mind is to know the content. Do you remember we talked about this a couple of sessions ago? And so how can you just bracket the content and really focus instead on the process? The process of wanting. So like Tito was suggesting, to get to know what craving feels like. What does craving feel like? And to get to know what craving feels like over time. And you can feel this in the body. I mean, let's, let's try it. Take, your, take a fist and really squeeze it so tight and then let it go. And then again, squeeze it really tight. Can you breathe? (laughs) And then let it go. And again, squeeze it really tight. Tighter. Okay, now stay like this. So in a minute, I'm going to ask you to let go. But when you let go, instead of letting go with energy of trying to straighten out the palm. Instead, just allow the palm to unfold without you making it unfold and see just how much it actually unfolds. So let's let go. Not so much. It's really interesting. If we did this for about five minutes, the more we do it, we'd notice that in the end it would just be stuck like this. You know? And so our, our state of mind in terms of contraction 
and the breath and the nervous system and the muscles and fascia and layers of the body, they're inseparable. And wanting or contraction as a psychophysical process and spiritual process all go together. You know? Because in a state of wanting from a spiritual perspective, when we're caught up in wanting or obsessive clinging, uh, it obscures our ability to notice anything other than the conceit of our own need. And when we're caught up in the conceit of our own desire, our own wanting, we can't serve, we can't take in anything other than our own ideas. And so in Buddhist psychology, there are three different kinds of craving. The first kind of craving is the craving for sensual pleasure. And don't forget that included in the list of sense organs is the mind. So the mind can also use thinking as a form of sensual pleasure, which is a really interesting way of thinking about thinking. And in craving for sensual pleasure, what's obscured is the natural openness of our, of our basic attitude. I was trying to think of an example of craving for sensual pleasure and the first example that came to my mind as I was thinking about this last night is um, the Dalai Lama gave a series of talks in Los Angeles about four years ago and um, when he was in LA between his hotel and the place where he was giving the talks in this large auditorium he had to uh, drive down this strip where there's all these electronics stores with flashing lights and um, and about halfway through his talks you know on the fourth or fifth day um, he was talking about the craving for sensual pleasure and one of the examples he used is driving every day past these electronics stores and he didn't know what any of the items were that were for sale and he could actually barely even see them from the car, but after about four days, he really wanted something. <laughs> <laughs> and found himself really wanting some kind of electronic item from a store that he had no knowledge of, no use for. And um, I think we've all had this experience, right? How much more shopping happens when we're lonely? or when we're wanting than when we're content. So just the way that this, this mode of wanting um, covers over a natural sense of ease. So you could say the opposite of tana is shanti. 
the word shanti in Sanskrit means peace or ease, state of ease. And you know this when you feel at ease, when some of your fixations have eased, that um, there's a lack of wanting. (laughs) Or it's nibbana, it's extinguished. And if we begin to think of nirvana as a moment where wanting is absent, we start to understand this practice outside of metaphysical philosophy and instead in a, in a very personal, um, accessible way. And the amazing thing about the, the capacity in the mind and body to plant new grooves is that in every moment that you establish this letting go of wanting, you've created a pattern in the mind-body process that knows what that feels like. And as these mindfulness practices become more mature in our own lives, we begin to notice not just the arising of wanting, but also what it feels like when there is no wanting. And actually, you know, for myself, this might be one of the hardest places to really bring attention, is to really settle in to those moments where there's no wanting. Because the habit of wanting has so much power. Letting go without replacing the wanting with not wanting. (laughs) The concept of not wanting. And this brings us to the second form of craving, which is the craving for becoming. (laughs) Wanting a moment to become something else. Wanting a meeting with something to become something else. Wanting the self to become something else. So the first is the craving for sense pleasure, and the second is craving for becoming. This week when I was practicing, um, I would wake up early in the morning and um, it was cold this week. (laughs) And it's spring. And so when I was getting my clothes on to go outside, um, it was so cold. And the first thing that came into my mind is a close friend of mine who's in Mexico right now (laughs) practicing and all I was thinking oh Mexico is so much more conducive but then I realized you know the amazing thing about winter in Toronto is that 
we're so aware of the weather. It's right there. And either it can be a distraction that gives rise to craving, or it can actually be the thing that wakes us up. Oh, (laughs) here it is, the cold wind. So at a more subtle state of mind, do we need that to be any different? That wind just woke me up. And maybe if I was in Mexico, I wouldn't have had that wake up. And an irritation. But if we treat it as something to pay attention to, then we don't treat it as good or bad. It's not a distraction, it's not an irritation, it doesn't give rise to craving, to clinging, and so on. And then the interesting thing is is that um, after practicing coming out and the sun being so beautiful, there were a lot of blue skies this week too. (laughs) And again, just noticing the transitory nature that how a mind state in one moment that feels so real and so even debilitating a couple of moments later is empty, impermanent, insubstantial, and means nothing. (laughs) So what I'm suggesting is also over time, we're not just going to see, as Tito was describing, the arising of craving, the arising of wanting, but also really getting to know those states of mind, those mind moments where there's an absence of wanting. What it feels like to be at ease and to know that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, when you make that suggestion in your meditation, at that moment I wasn't aware of a craving. So what happened, my mind said, I wonder if I'm supposed to think of areas of craving in my life. Uh-huh. So this is you now, probably, and I thought, I did the next thought was, I don't think I'm supposed to do that. Uh-huh. Um, so, practice awareness, but if you're aware that you're not wanting, or you yeah. have a dilemma what I'm supposed to do, yeah. I mean, that's a lack of use in itself. Sure. Yeah, Um, yeah, sure. If you notice, oh, I I mean, of course all of you have figured out already that every one of these meditations instruction can be applied either to the act right here of formal practice (coughs) or anywhere in your life in general. Um, Leave that one alone for now. Um, maybe it will bring up some place where, oh, I haven't realized that this argument I'm having with so-and-so has really been about wanting. Or cri- Okay, fine, notice that, great. But in terms of the meditation instruction, notice where wanting is happening right now. You don't have to pull in something from far away. And then it's interesting to... N- you know, maybe notice where we're wanting something to be happening. 
Like sometimes that's a reason why we bring fantasy in in our meditation practice is because it, it, it makes something happen. <laughs> so, but for myself in that moment, I wasn't aware of wanting anything, so I just stay in that awareness. Yeah, just notice that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One thought for me, I guess, the whole difference between wanting and desire, not something that's not present at the time, yeah. and taking care of the body, thinking of it other aspects of, of the care of things that are normal yeah. necessities of, yep. of care. Mm-hmm. How I find myself how to separate that out. Yeah. Yeah, I mean Tana is usually translated as desire. And one of the reasons why I translate it as wanting rather than desire is because desire in English means a lot of different things. It, it's too vague. Um, so wanting in the way we're using the term um, is a, is a characteri- has the characteristic of a kind of contraction or fixation, okay. even if it's very mild, where there's awareness of the result, you know? And because I think about the need, and I've often thought I want, which is need. I have a simple need of your breakfast to have, uh, to have nourishment. Yeah. But there's an expectation or a desire or a want you to more than that. Yeah. Which actually takes away um, the same is true with, you know, uh, devotion. You know, um, it's Gabriella's birth. It's not really her birthday, but it's, we'll pretend it's her birthday. And I, I have no attachment and no desire. So happy birthday here, Gabriella. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter what I choose. I'd have this nice cup. Doesn't mean anything to me. Right. There's no desire. That's not what we mean. What we mean is there's so little, there's an absence of conceit and of being caught in my own compulsions that I can spend some time and really think about what Gabriella would love as a gift. What would she really love? And I can really spend time finding something, making something, creating something to offer her. And I'm not doing it to get anything out of it. It's because I'm really interested in what she likes. Yeah. Yeah. There's no wanting. There's just devotion. Uh Uh-huh. And that's why we're not using the word desire. Desire can be wonderful. If I'm a saxophone player and I hear Ornette Coleman play, I, I, I want to play like that. In, in psychoanalysis, we call this positive idealization, where it's like that sets up a whole new um, bar. Right? Not in a competitive sense, but in an inspired sense. And then when I reach that, I have to let that go also. 
So um, there's a place for intention and aspiration, but there isn't a clinging to the result. I mean, this is the joke about having a self-image, right? That, that you think that you can control how someone else is going to perceive you. <laughs> what a joke. I mean, really. That you think that you can somehow manipulate someone's perception of you? Wow. And that's why sometimes the state of awareness in Zen is called ordinary mind. (laughs) Ordinary mind. So the Buddha gives two instructions for working with the craving to become. The first instruction is not reviving the past. Not reviving the past. And the second instruction is not hoping to be in the future. <laughs> Who, Not reviving the past and not hoping to be in the future. <laughs> I'm having more trouble with the second one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who was I in the past? Who will I become in the future? And so we have this. I mean, this is how we operate during the day, right? That you have this whole past, which is all of your history and your baggage and your identifications. And then how is that somehow going to become me in the future? And there's a lot of weight there (laughs) in balancing these two, which actually don't even exist. And the third form of craving is the craving for non-becoming. The craving for non-becoming. Okay, well, if I'm not going to become, then I just won't become. (laughs) So here you have a warning about certain states of mind like nihilism or passivity. Okay, then... I'm not going to be anything. (laughs) And then you've created a new ego that is not going to be anything. Which is being something. Which is being something. There's a a really great story about um, the the teacher in the Thai forest tradition named Ajahn Sumedho. And he was asked by his teacher, Ajahn Chah, to leave Thailand and go to uh, the UK and open a monastery. And uh, that, that's a really huge thing to be. <laughs> to be a, but Ajahn Chah was actually dying. And he said, now go to the UK, leave Thailand now, and go uh, build a monastery. So he went to the UK and he had a very hard time establishing a monastery. And just before Ajahn Chah died, he sent Ajahn Sumedho a letter. And the letter said, um, the way of the Buddha is not going forward, not going back, 
and not being still. Could you imagine your Ajahn Sumedho, and you, you're supposed to go build a monastery, <laughs> and you receive this letter from your dying teacher. <laughs> Don't go forward. <laughs> Don't go forward. And so the mind immediately goes, well, should I go backwards? Right. So, oh, don't go backwards. The way is not forward and it's not backward. So obviously the mind says, okay, I'll just be still, non-becoming. So, oh no, don't be still. And this is a kind of question that you can't figure out with your mind. Because who is going forward? If I ask you in your life, where are you really going forward? What I will hear is the ambition of the eye maker that is going forward for something. And I'd say there's a deep distrust here of this kind of ambition, which, of course, we so value in our culture. David Loy will talk about this, this kind of ambition. So wouldn't we need to have some ambition to build a monastery under difficult circumstances? So don't do this with your mind. This is not designed to come up with an answer. (laughs) And don't go backwards. Don't go backwards. Maybe I should go back to Thailand. And don't be still. Because from this perspective, there's separation. I am going to be still. I am going to be still. Who's going to be still? Who's going backwards? So he's saying the way is not forwards, it's not backwards, and it's not still. So what's the way? Who's doing things? <laughs> Who's waking up? I. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Who's that? This body. Is the body you? And more, and I'm more than the body. The body uh-huh. Who's more than the body? So those feelings are yours? Those thoughts are all yours? Like, did you create all the feelings that you feel? The sound of the train coming? Did you create that? When I go out and, and, and in contact, like, 
get up, I'm with my family, I get up, I go to work, I get up. Who gets up? <laughs> Who's that? <laughs> Is that the question? So, so Isn't that question so much more interesting than sitting around defining who we are and what our ambitions are? Isn't it, doesn't it give us such a wonderful sense of false security to know who we are and what we're doing? And again, the mind can say the opposite. Okay, then I'm nobody, and I'm doing nothing, and everything I do has no meaning. And then you've created another viewpoint that you're clinging to. So this is why the Buddha doesn't end by saying that craving is for sensual pleasure or becoming. He captures this other subtle movement in the mind, which is that once you start to see the nature of sensual pleasure then there can be some becoming still. And then if you're working on becoming, the opposite can show up. Okay, well then I'm going to do (laughs) non-becoming. Who's doing non-becoming? Well, now there's a me that's doing non-becoming. And this is not just intellectual tricks. This is a careful observation of these three movements that the mind is trying to do to keep a me so when you're juggling all those balls, I mean, it's Who's juggling the balls? <laughs> I am. <laughs> it might be an illusion that I am, but, you know, I don't know what else to say, it's just I am. Uh-huh. And I understand we're looking, I mean, he comes back to a couple of ages, so you're looking then between all of these, the middle paths. Yeah. Because the opposite is, I think the danger in this with some of the thoughts it is, like I was, I didn't know that, that he said that, that, that third craving is the non doing, because mm-hmm. you start to get into also think, oh, well then I will do, do nothing, but I am not doing nothing mm-hmm. in living. Yeah. So what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> and if the I is not the central figure, in these questions then forward and backwards and stillness sensual pleasure and um, uh, becoming and non-becoming have no purchase on the personality whose daily life <laughs> you don't have to go through your daily life experiencing interbeing you just have to set up the conditions for it happening in short moments for long duration. Right now, in this moment, this is what we're practicing. But the mind comes in and says, okay, now I have to do this in my life all the time. You know? <laughs> it's, like, it's again this, this creating a me that exists permanently in space and time that's going to achieve this. And that's difficult. But (laughs) we've missed the point of what the Buddha is saying here. That's becoming. (laughs) I have a question about the I. There is a consciousness in the moment that comes from 
whatever is going on in the moment. Mm -hmm. There is an awareness in the moment. Mm -hmm. I understand that we can't define I. There is no I in quotation marks. Mm -hmm. But how does one refer to that consciousness in the moment, or that awareness in the moment? Mm -hmm. One doesn't refer to awareness in the moment. Awareness is happening. And the, the I is happening in front of awareness. Everything is happening in front of awareness. And awareness stands behind like a mirror, noticing. It's not taking the shape of any of these things that consciousness is being shaped by. Okay, so, so I'm focusing on my breath. And I am my breath at that moment. I'm really having a good moment. But how do I say that? I can't say I am my breath. What, what's there to say? In the Tao Te Ching, this is the beginning paragraph, right? The Tao that can be talked about is not the Tao. <laughs> Tao is, is uh, the, the word that in Sanskrit is marga the path, the way. The way that can be talked about is not the way. <laughs> and if you really want to talk about it to yourself, if that's something you're into, <laughs> then play around with how you talk about it. Like, like a wonderful yeah. practice can be, for example, sitting without using the first person prone or pronoun. You know, you can, oh, <coughs> the body needs to pee. So, the body is going to go pee. And I ran into that problem reading the little thing you had to write. Uh -huh. I kept saying I and then bringing quotation marks because I thought I it's difficult yeah. to express. Yeah. There is nothing wrong with using the term I. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. But in our practice, we're trying to penetrate some of the ways where we're creating the separation. Because as soon as you create a sense of I, the I is in relationship to an object. And then there's separation. And sati, mindfulness practice, is setting up the conditions for what's called manasikara, which is usually translated as bare attention, where there's just what's happening. And there is no longer even observer observing what's happening. So there is only breath, there is only sensation, there is only... And there is only I, making I stories. But it's seen doing that. And I think the first session we all had together, one of the things that I was suggesting to you is to notice how in meditation practice the, the first movements of mind can be spacing out or complete identification with what's happening and not being able to get this sense of an observer watching what's happening. So you saying that you are the observer is still a form of an identification, being caught in the identification. And if you understand what I'm talking about, you've missed it entirely. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> and that's why we're practicing. Because somehow we know that craving is bound up with a need 
for me to become. And uh, aren't we going to do this to our own practice? But I'm meditating because I want to get something. <laughs> I'm not doing this for free. I want to get something out of this. I think that's really important to teaching it to it. Yeah. It's being talked about more and more in the hospital. And, yeah. and I'm just I'm participating now <coughs> in the service or in the participant in a John Kevin type group and patient. And the whole discussion is on coming to this to get rid of my pain. Yeah. And yet there's the structure thing how the practice is not to come to this. Mm-hmm. This will not be the practice. It will come with the sure. attention to get. And yet that's what we do. Yeah. And on to the yeah. the instructor is to even try to convey uh-huh. that's not uh-huh. the like going back and examining what is Sure. Yeah. Well, this seems like a good time for a break. <laughs> so um, let's have a short break. Fifteen.